Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Woj Pod. And something I've wanted to do for some time with the podcast, I hope we'll do more of it this season and moving forward, getting some of the smartest, most accomplished people in the game together to talk about their craft, the league, their journeys. And we do that this week with two championship coaches, the Miami Heat's Eric Spolstra and the Los Angeles Clippers' Doc Rivers, and our visit about the league, the Celtic Heat rivalry that really reshaped the modern NBA, Pat Riley and both of their connections and influence with him, and a lot more. I hope you enjoy listening to this Doc Rivers, Eric Spolster podcast as much as I think the three of us did recording it. So let's get right to it. Doc Rivers and Eric Spolstra. Doc Rivers, Los Angeles Clippers coach, Eric Spolstra, Miami Heat coach. Between you two, 2,438 regular season games coached, 1,400 17 wins, six NBA finals, two championships for Eric Spolstra, one for Doc Rivers, and four Woj pods now, which I appreciate. Uh, <laughs> That's the most with you guys. Yeah, a- absolutely. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny, guys. We're in Chicago. NBA coaches meetings are here. All your peers are here, except for a couple who are off at USA Basketball. And it's funny to see you guys, and I see some of your competitors, seeing each other in the lobby and guys, the relationships in the league among coaches. And what's interesting is, you know, you guys are the sandwich of, you know, it's funny, all the owners, the players, the fans, like the only thing they all have in common is they all think they could coach better than you guys. I don't think the players think they could be owners. I'm not sure the owners think they could be players. But in a lot of ways, your fraternity is like the front line of taking it from above, below, outside. You're the clearinghouse for it. And you, you kind of see it, I think, with your profession that there is an empathy for each other. There's no doubt. You know, um, I've done it. This is my 20, I think, 20th or 21st year in a row, at least starting camp. Um, and when I look at all the people who have come and gone and good coaches, you know, that have come and gone and, and you look at some of the crazy firings that have happened in, in that time span, you do, you, you, you start understanding each other. You know, it's a madness in some ways, uh, but it's a love in another way and uh, sharing and having, having people to share stuff with is important. Yeah, and you just look across the sideline in January and you can see the bags under everybody's eyes and we're all going through it. It's a grind. We, we love what we're doing. Obviously, it's an unbelievable profession to be a part of, uh, but there is that empathy. And it's not like we're in college. We're not recruiting against each other. And, and Well, kind of not. <laughs> yeah. Kind of not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not uh, quite as cutthroat like that. And, and uh, you know, it's really just a, the game that we can bond on. This time of year, and you, as soon as we sat down, you guys were already talking about what your teams are doing in the off season, conditioning. And Eric and I were talking about this earlier. Like you hit Labor Day, and what happens to your but like Labor Day, 
You come out of that. You know, you got the coaches meetings and campus starting this month. There's your body almost like you're rounding third heading for training camp. Does the sun hit you after Labor Day? Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, my letters go out earlier to invite all the players back uh, after Labor Day. Uh, this year was a week later uh, because our facility wasn't ready to receive them yet. We were redoing our facility. And it just takes on – it's like the sign of the season starts. I know October 4th or 5th or whenever it is, training camp starts – but I think for most teams, most coaches and staff, it starts the day after Labor Day. You know, your teams get back together, uh, your staffs get together, um, and you all of a sudden take a more serious tone about the rest of the summer. You too. It's funny. I found an interview you did years ago, Doc. Um, both of you are kind of clinic rats, and I know Spo will. Whether it's you're both in Florida living together for extended period, both coaching in Florida and, and you were still in Orlando with your family. And I, and I saw an interview with you where you were talking about you're one of those state high school clinics and you look out in the stands and you see but you know, high school coaches, college coaches taking notes. And I think you were in Boston at the time. And then you look out and who do you see with a notebook? Was it C- Cispo <laughs> sitting over there? And I, and I loved it because I thought I was the only one. You know, but it is what we do. And listen – I don't, I don't think I've ever been at a game that I wasn't involved in where I didn't learn something uh, or where I didn't steal something. You know, I, I tell, I've told the story about against Cleveland in, in the game seven. We ran a play that my son Austin's high school team, uh, and I saw it two weeks earlier, and I was thinking, well, that's an interesting play. And you run it. It works. Uh, you know, so, yeah, I don't think we ever stop. You don't ever turn it on, off, and you can never stop learning. You, know, you never stop learning uh, this game. Not just the X and O's. I think early on it was more X and O stuff. And then as you evolve, I think it's more people stuff. It's amazing how that changes. It's funny you bring up the AAU game because there was another one in Miami, 0.9 seconds left, game tied, and you ran one of those uh, circle of fence jobs <laughs> yeah. for uh, Rondo. He got the lob, and then we were so pissed after the game. I mean, you have Ray, you have Garnett, Pierce. We basically thought it was – going to go for sure to one of those guys and you ran a lob to Rondo and then afterwards I read that you said that you cut that play from your son's <laughs> AU game I crumpled up everything I said, all right video guys we're starting to scout I want all the AU ATO specials now <laughs> see if we go up something to get the Celtics next time we play them as as head coaches both of you have has either of you experienced anything as intense as what you went through in those Celtic heat series, rivalries. And what's interesting is 2008, the big threes put together in Boston via trade. And then Miami responds in 2010 via free agency. And a lot LeBron hadn't gotten past Boston in Cleveland. That was some of the thought of going to Miami. And those two teams changed the course of this league. Well, you know, you're right as far as the three. You know, it it went from the one superstar, let's try to win, to the two superstars, and then it went to the three. It's amazing. It's actually going back to two in some ways again uh, to match up with all the teams. And, you know, I think we had the same situation. Uh, I would say this. I I got Kevin, Paul, and Ray at the right time. Sometimes you need players at the right time. And, And not for me, for them. It was the right time for them to try to win. 
You know, they had all, they had all three have done a lot of stuff individually. They had a lot of awards, but it was time for winning for them. And so I got them at the exact time that they needed that. Uh, and then unfortunately, when, uh, you know, we were starting to go down the other way, they come in with, with their version of the big three. And now I felt facing them, you know, what was interesting from our standpoint, I don't think Kevin and Paul and Ray wanted to give them that they 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 really wanted to beat them because they didn't want another big three. Uh, it was interesting how that all played out. Game six, Spo in Boston in 2012. 2011, you go to the NBA Finals. You lose to Dallas. You come back. You were up 2-0. Now you're down 3-2. You're going to Boston. You've coached a game seven in the NBA Finals. You've coached, uh, you've won a championship in a game five, I guess, in a game seven. In your life, did you ever feel like you were coaching a bigger game than that game six in Boston yeah. down 3-2? You know what's really interesting about that series, too, is game one, we win probably by about 15 points. And we felt like we were, you know, in control uh, after one game. And then game two, boom, all of a sudden it goes OT. And... We win that one, just like you said. We're we're two zero, and we go to Boston, and it is an absolute dogfight. And that one ends up going overtime. And we were actually up in the fourth quarter, most of the fourth quarter, and Boston came back and took uh, that game. It just shows you how quickly series can change. And you you feel like you're in control. We felt like we were playing be- better basketball, and it's two one. Uh, and then all of a sudden the momentum shifts and game four, as you can imagine, in the garden, they take full control and blow us out of that game. And it's 2-2 going back to Miami. And it's an absolute dogfight. And they absolutely just took our hearts out in game five. Uh, and it was tough. It was a really competitive game. And after being up 2-0 going into Boston and have an overtime game, you think you would be in control of the series. And, and we were down in the, in the series. We all felt it. Uh, we did not practice the next day. I just had a team meeting. And we just talked about, you know, our whys and why we put this team together. And, and we were going to have to face uh, the team that we knew we'd have to go through. And, and the Boston Celtics were, were that team for us. Uh, it was that team for LeBron before he got to us. It was that team, even though we didn't meet them late in the playoffs, but with Dwayne, we had enough built up dislike for that team and we knew we had to go through them. And going into the garden, yeah, you could hear it. You could hear the intensity level, you know, when they knew they thought they could, uh, close the series. Uh, we all felt it, but it was, it was a calmness going into that. It was, there was a quiet confidence going into it. And then when you saw LeBron's look, and I, I know that, that look is pretty famous by now. Uh, I think everybody just felt a, a higher level of confidence, uh, you know, going into that uh, game. Probably his biggest game of his career when you look back because, you know, he hadn't won yet. Right. You know, uh, the year before they, they lose to Dallas and, now all of a sudden, you know, he probably had the most pressure. Yeah. You know, because Dwayne had already had a title. Um, and so it's funny going into that game, you know, we are preparing for an onslaught from Dwayne and, and LeBron because we just know they're who they are. But uh the LeBron performance that night was was incredible. It was more shooting. Yeah. You remember, like we were you know, the driving and the and the passing we thought we were prepared for, but we were not prepared for the way he shot the ball that night. 45 points, 45 yeah. 15 points. Uh, rebounds, I think. Uh, and then we come back in game seven and 
Bosch, I brought him off the bench. He'd, he'd been out uh, since the Indiana series uh, with his uh, abductor strain. And came back and gave us uh, a huge th- oh, uh, fourth quarter, three, three, three threes. 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 Yeah, yeah, two threes in the oh. corner. Uh, yeah. Just gave us an incredible boost going down the stretch. Yeah, I went back. I was looking at the, the, the clips of Chris and a couple were off LeBron drive. And, and, and that was new. That was a wrinkle you hadn't – Chris had only shot a handful all season – and he said he was coming off the injury, and that was yeah, – will you always see him standing in that corner? Oh, those yeah, were, yeah, because yeah. he had made threes. Yeah. And, um, you know, listen, we – early on, we didn't mind him taking them, you know, but we didn't know he was going to make them, and then he made them over and over again. And now you're reeling. You've been there as a coach where you have to make a decision. Do you change your coverage or do you believe what you think you know that he can't keep making them? Uh, we changed our coverage a little bit in that game. I've been in games where I just decided there's no way a guy can keep making them, and I've lost games like that as well. And he wasn't in the series. He played the game before a little bit, but this was really his first uh, time to really get out in that playoff since he was hurt. When you're in a series like that and you're balancing the idea of staying with what your core beliefs are and what you have, how you played, what you who you've been about versus an adjustment, changing, doing something. Is that as difficult of a decision for a coach um, as you get deeper into a playoff series about where you go away from? Because it's that you tell your players, this is who we are. We're going to stay with it. We're going to stay with it. And then there's a point where you say, nope, we, we – We've got to change this. Yeah, I think your identity always has to be who you are. You build all these habits for months and, and weeks, and, and then the pressure of the early rounds of the playoffs, you, you, you find out who you are. But uh, if you face a team like Boston and you're not making adjustments, you know, particularly against them, we constantly had to make offensive adjustments. You, you think of it normally on the outside, you have to make defensive adjustments, and which you do, but their defense was, was that good. It really was. I, to me, I think it's still one of the best all-time defenses, uh, those Celtic teams, because if you just tried to run traditional pick-and-roll basketball against their bigs and the way they could rotate and disrupt you, uh, you're asking for trouble. Yeah, and it's tough. You know, you, you, they're trying. You, you want to establish who you are, and, and you want to be in who you are all year. Uh, but there's games and more playoff series where at some point you have to make an adjustment. Uh, and it's not easy because you don't want to make many adjustments as far as as long as it doesn't change who you are, but you have to constantly make. And I, I agree also, uh, by game three or four, it's more as, as many offensive adjustments uh, as it is defensive adjustments because by game three, hopefully by game one, they know what you're doing, you know, and so you have to, you have to wrinkle. You have to throw wrinkles in for sure. You two both, and, and you went through it, I think, Spo, in that first year with your big three in Miami. And, and I think, Doc, you went through this maybe the year before the big three came. I think there was some thought in ownership in Boston off of that season. Is Doc the right coach, Danny? Should we keep going forward with him? Danny's answer, Danny Ainge's answer to management was, to ownership, I got to get him better players. And I think he told you that. And, and then for you, Spo, when there are challenges with players early on, Pat Riley's upstairs, you come to a point as a coach where, and you talked about early, Doc, there are a lot of guys who do not get support and they are gone. And what it meant when you come to a moment of truth as a coach in this league 
And it's easy to look back now and say, well, of course they would have stayed with Doc Rivers, or of course Spo was going to break through with this group and win titles. But it always wasn't so clear then. And when you think about having the structure you had versus guys who may have had careers like you, but never got out of the gate because someone didn't stay with him. Well, it's absolute. Like, you know, Danny was fantastic for me, you know. Um, at the end of the day, I think it came down to two things. It came down to who your boss is, and Danny Ainge was my boss, uh, and then who ownership is. And if you have great ownership, uh, then you have a chance. You know, if you don't have great ownership, even maybe with a great uh, boss above you, you're not going to survive. And uh, I was fortunate enough to have both. And, and – we had a lot of ownership, if you know, in Boston. Yeah. There were some uh, of that ownership that didn't, you know, they at least questioned. Uh, they were taking meetings with other people and stuff like that, and, and you hear about it. And uh, Danny, I give him credit. Every day, every game, uh, that the year before we won it, he would come in and apologize. He said, I know this is hard. Um, I just need you to hang in there. I think Danny's fear was that I was going to quit, which I kept always saying, where was I going? I was going <laughs> nowhere. Uh, but the fact that I had that uh, was huge for me, and it made the difference. I mean, I think uh, Mickey and Pat are uh, two of the the best tandems, you know, in ownership and president in all of sports. Uh, they're up there, you know, and, and top three. They understand uh, the need for stability. They'll weather, you know, storms, and, and we – you know, we all struggled that first year. I, I struggled quite a bit. I mean, uh, particularly in, in that final series. Uh, but you also have these series that uh, we were down in so many of them. They could swing either way. I mentioned that about our, our series against Boston. One play here, one play there. Uh, that's, that's the margin of difference, uh, is really sometimes a, a shot going in or not going in and, the ownership and and my bosses, I, I love who I work for uh, because they do have my back. But at the same time, it's not fantasy land. There was a reality. I also knew I was pretty. If it wasn't spoken, it was well known. <laughs> I mean, they wouldn't have wanted to do it. But if if we would have kept on uh, going, you know, and not uh, getting over the hump somehow, some way, there there would have been a change. And and I get it. I understand it. Like. Uh, this is what this business is about, but you want a fair shot at it. And while you are competing for it and you're in those series where there are swing moments, you want the full support uh, of the people you work for. I remember in game seven, even, you know, so I survived. We, we, we get the big three. And in the first round of the Atlanta series, we had a game seven, which people don't realize yeah. we won the, the first round. We we're in a game. They were seven. a tough matchup. For yeah. You. They, they yeah. were a tough matchup for us, you know, and I jokingly made the comment, the city of Atlanta is, is a factor as well. <laughs> but that was above everyone's head. <laughs> but Eric knows exactly what I meant by that. But I remember going into game seven. We had a, uh, I think it was a 12-30. I knew it was an afternoon game. We get in late that night, and Danny calls me and says, you know, one of the owners wanted to have a meeting. And I was like, oh, no, thank you. And Danny said, no, I think they, they really have, they want to have a meeting. And I said, no, thank you. I'll pass. <laughs> On the meeting, um, we have a game seven tomorrow, and then he started laughing. Okay, I'll take the hit. I'll take the bullet for you. But you, you know, listen. Even though you know that if things don't turn out, you're, you're going to lose your job, you still have to maintain who you are, uh, and you still have to maintain control over the team and, and what you're doing and your beliefs, and you have to stay with it. When you guys hear the term "coachable player," he's a coachable player. Hmm. Is there a difference between coachable 
and compliant. What, what does that mean? And does it mean something different than it meant 10 years ago doing this? Oh, that's a good question. Um, and I'll say this too. Um, I don't think we know what a coachable player is until you coach them. Because there, I've coached a mini player who was a quote unquote a coachable player, one of the best players I've ever had. And then you get them and not so good. And the other way, I've gotten calls, don't take this guy, he's a cancer. And he's turning not only to one of the best players you've ever coached, but one of the guys that you still maintain contact with. And and what that taught me is there's not a lot of bad guys in the league. There's there's guys that just don't fit you. And I learned that early on not to take it personal. You know, listen, it just we don't match and that's fine, or we match and that's fine. So what I would say for players, uh, for us is the compliancy that like you, you have to have cooperation to win. You're not winning unless the players and everyone cooperates with each other. And then when you do that, then you have a chance to win. Yeah. It's almost, you know, you can use that word coachable or uh, a player that's willing to collaborate. It's almost, uh, I mean, because just like Doc says, uh, you know, I've coached a lot of guys that uh, you might not think are coachable because they may be disputing or arguing something which is healthy in some regards, but they have to be able to see the bigger picture of collaboration, how important that is. And then you're going to have moments, flare up moments all the time in this league. That's what this, you know, a competitive league like this league is. You, you add the weeks and months, there's going to be those moments where you're just kind of getting after each other and, and you might not want to see the, each other, you know, for five straight days and, and compete and do all that. But, uh, the players that can to see the bigger picture. And I think about it all the time. I think about so much of this league is the, the right opportunity, the right place, the right fit. And we try to do our best that we can to make that the right fit. But even sometimes as, as much as you try, it just – it isn't <laughs> and vice versa. I had – before we sat down – well, as we sat down, I hadn't even turned this on. And you guys were already talking about Patrick Beverly, who you spoke had, had in Miami very early in his career. And he got cut and then bounced around, went to Europe, came back. And sure, you have a player like that, Joe Ingles, in L.A. You kept yeah. – where you go – you know, but – he wasn't Patrick Beverly yet, and he wasn't Joe Ingles yet. And you can look back, and it's easy. You know, nobody else in the league was necessarily banging their doors down then. But looking back at guys and saying, how much will you kick yourself over? You know, there's so many decisions you make where you you don't even maybe don't even open the door to an idea. Say, no, we're not taking that guy. Or you got close, you brought him in, and you moved him out. Or you kept him, and you know you should have. Like, can you spend much time thinking about that in this job? I don't. I yeah. mean, listen, it's. Uh you do when you see the guy yeah. and he's on the other team and he's playing well. And you're like, man, I, how didn't I see that? Uh, in Joe Ingles' case, you remember, we had no guarantees left. And I, Dave Wool was running the team of GM, him and I, and really liked him. I wanted to keep him, but I didn't think he was going to be that great, you know, especially what he's turned out to be. I loved his vision. That's the one thing I remember about Joe Ingles. Man, this guy can see the floor. Uh, but to do what he's doing now is is absolutely amazing. And, you know, you don't give it much thought because you get some right, you get some wrong, and you just keep moving on. Yeah, I, I always see Pat now and just give him a nod. And, look, I, to this day, I've never coached a, had a Chicago 
player that I didn't enjoy coaching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Dwayne, obviously, Quinn Richardson, but even Pat would have been a great uh, fit. It just wasn't the right time. So it was the right fit, just wasn't the right time. And, uh, you know, somebody on my staff right now, Chris Quinn, uh, he kids me all the time, but I do take it to heart. He was just basically uh, one year, it was part of the year was a backup point guard, but I just didn't think the game then the way I do now uh, because of his skill level I cost him millions which he reminds me all the time but I'm like hey you got a lifetime contract as long as I have a job with the Eid you can you can be uh, with they us they forget either yeah you know right. like I, I've heard Pat mention Miami like uh, oh yeah he's still mad yeah. Uh, yeah Joe Ingles every time he plays us he yeah. tries to kill us and and I you know I laugh like uh you know I, I want to tell my players hey guys there's one guy on the other team that's really going to go after you today, and it's my fault. There's nothing you can do about it, though. But they don't forget. Does every coach have one or two guys who, you know, the, you know, great coaches will always say, I learn from my players. And I don't just mean the Kevin Garnett or the Paul Pierce or the Dwayne Wade or the LeBron James, but are there guys you look back and say, wow, this isn't a guy anybody else would talk about. But, man, he taught me this, or I learned more from that guy than I ever imagined I would. He wasn't – Maybe one of my best players. Yeah, I I look at somebody like Quentin Richardson, who I only coached for one year, and uh, and I didn't know anything really about him. He was coming from New York, so he was going through some personal things, and I had no idea what to expect other than what Dwayne was saying. But he was such a team guy, and his his ability like uh, to fit in and buy in, and again that collaboration. He was all all about those things. Uh, I don't know necessarily, you know, the exact things I, I learned. It was just one of those uh, things that was a pleasant surprise. Uh, and he was one of my favorite players that I coached for only, you know, for seven months of, yeah. of the season. I would say James Posey, you know, who, who you guys had in Miami. Yeah. Uh, he was an absolute winner. He believed uh, he had this thing about if you don't do it right, like, uh, you know, he, he was – you had to – there was a spirit he believed that the game had to be played at. And – if you didn't play, if he would hold everyone accountable, coaches, players. Uh, I remember Ray in, in, in one of our series didn't box out like three times in a row on a guy. And so the, the third time the guy gets the rebound, it was Childress in Atlanta. Guy gets the rebound, lays it in, and we're, you know, we try to get it out and up. Posey would not take the ball out of bounds. He was protesting <laughs> at the time. I had to call the timeout. And, and I call a timeout and he says, looks at me, are you going to tell him? Are you going to tell him to block out? You know, it was to him, it was what's right. And it teaches you that, you know. And so, yeah, it's, I've had several guys like that, which is really cool. Rondo, on the other hand, was just smart. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he drove tips crazier than me, uh, <laughs> because you couldn't make a mistake in shoot around and Rondo delighted in telling you, no, no, that's, that's not the right play. Uh, and so he kept you, he kept you, he keeps you honest. You know, for all the data, the analytics, like all your own personal experiences, a trial and error you go through as head coaches through the years, are there still like one or two things that you grapple with more in terms of decisions you have to make or things about your job? That no matter how much you go through it, it is just the hardest thing to measure in your job um, as a head coach. Yeah, for me, it's I still think substitutions. Yeah. You know, in the, in the middle of a game at the time, 
you know, there's a lot of different times at the end of a game. It's, uh, you know, I think we always, what call to make, you know, coming out of a timeout. Uh, I, I take that very serious. So I grapple with the set. I grapple with who should be on the floor. But more is the substitution patterns all the time. Like who down the stretch do you want on? If you have a good team, it's, it's harder, you know? Um, so I would say that. Yeah, and and role definition is always something that just is continuing to be a challenge. I, I don't know if it's more of a challenge now than it was ten years ago, uh, but I do. I, I feel for guys that might not be getting the minutes or n- might not even be in the rotation that you want to keep them uh, still engaged so that things change. I mean, it's, uh, they constantly change, and I've seen it just so many times, not only with us but with other teams, those guys that may be the 10th or 11th guy for whatever reason, and they – quite honestly could deserve to be the seventh guy if their mind is right and you can keep them still engaged they can win you games and then find a way to to get back in that rotation that's a balancing act I, I feel like I'm always struggling with how much do you guys have to allow for attention span with your players and an attention span of young people that is different than maybe when both of you started at this in terms of how much you can give them how much more concise you have to be maybe on what the key things are and how to keep their attention. Like how long of a speech, how long should I talk? How long do you have to allow for that with players? Look, first of all, the, the infamous Miami heat playbooks, you know, that I'm sure uh, Tibbs did with you guys. And it started with, with Pat, when he first uh, uh, took over, uh, Jeff Buzdelic was, the first guy that did the, the playbook. And it's, you know, it's, Pat didn't really look at it. He just wanted to feel the weight of it. <laughs> and he wanted to know that there was blood, sweat, and tears and months of work behind it. And he just wanted to see your eyes behind that. That was Jeff Van Gundy when he was in, in New York. Uh, but Jeff used to hand write every single one of those diagrams and, you know, go through it page by page. And if he messed up the last diagram, he'd have to redo it all over again. And then that became Stan. And then that became me. By the time I had to do it, I almost had a mental breakdown. Uh, but then there was quizzes and the guys did get those playbooks. And I remember vividly when Pat was the head coach, uh, he was talking about putting in a nine to five day. And this was back at our old practice facility, LaSalle High School. Yeah. And he came in really uh, upset one day and he said, we're going to do a nine to five day. <laughs> and, and we started out with like pre-practice, then film, then lunch, and then more film. I mean, it must have been a two and a half hour film session. All of us crammed in this room, uh, watching one game, just, uh, you know, just painstakingly one play after another until it got to about 4.30. I mean, I, to this day, I can't even I can't even believe it. But look at how much things have changed. I mean, I can't even go through a 17-minute film no, session before no. I've lost everybody, yeah, including my coaching so staff. True. I, I'd say this. Um, we're both like just the uh, the time of the day, how much time you spend, you, you always are worried about it. Uh, yeah. I think about it all the time with speeches. You know, it's funny. In Orlando, my first job – I'm basically a product of Pat Riley. You know, we both are. And so, you know, I still have my Nick books, you know, uh, which is funny because Riles, you know, you had to turn those books back yeah. in. Oh, yeah. And I just took the fine every year. You know, I just I decided <laughs> I wanted to coach and I'm not giving these books up. So I would take the fine. And then when I coach, you know, my first three years in Orlando as a coach, those books are, I look at them now. I was like, I wouldn't read these books. 
let alone that the players had to read them. But it, you know what's interesting? I think you found there's some guys that read them. They oh, read, yeah. They read everything. Oh, yeah. And then there's a couple guys, you know, may not have opened the book. Right. Uh, that didn't mean that he was a good or bad player. Well, I didn't get <laughs> fired for, uh, you know, us losing to Dallas in the finals, uh, <laughs> but I may get fired for this. <laughs> <laughs> the last two years, we haven't even done a play. No, I, I mean, we do a little bit of video yeah. playbook, uh, but we haven't actually physically put one together because the guys won't look at it. And they don't learn in that manner anymore. And, and the attention spans and looking, you know, at, at diagrams, even if you put it on an iPad, uh, it's just not as efficient as doing it in other ways. Yeah, all my, you know, all the coaches that I've had, I've had a lot of assistant coaches, and everyone we've had to do this book. And so, four years ago, my assistant Anne Marie comes right. to me and says, "I don't think the books are good ideas anymore. I think maybe we need to, to move on from them. No one's reading them." <laughs> and so she was right. I, I went away from them. You know. You mentioned Pat Riley and both of his impact on, on both of you in very different ways. Doc, you played for him in New York. I think he famously, in, in the middle of a drag out argument you were having, he you know yelled at you, "You're going to be a coach someday," and yeah. you're like, "Screw you!" That's that was an ugly. Happened, that right? was an ugly argument at the right. time because <laughs> he was he was releasing me at the same time. Uh, but uh, right. and, and, it, yeah, it's nuts. Yeah, and, and Spo obviously you uh, you didn't play for him. You came up through the video room as a coach, assistant coach, and then you replace him. As head coach in Miami, Pat's influence on the coaching profession, and I think the doesn't the, get enough credit. The, the stead that coaches became held in, and I think Chuck Daly played a part mm-hmm. in that too. Yeah, and it's funny you have you know Ron Rothstein who yeah. is on your staff, yeah. who's been on your staff. Ron, you know, was with Chuck, and he was with Pat, and he was with you, and kind of bridged that a little bit, but but. Pat glamorized, not only glamorized the profession, but the fundamentals and how people do the work, prepare, coach teams, talk to teams. Even guys, I think, who didn't play for him, there's a tree of Pat that extends. That's like Bill Walsh. Yeah. He's the Bill Walsh of the the NBA, and he systematized it all. And and he used to always have a saying. You probably heard it. You don't want to do things the way, you know, the the best in the world. You want to be the only one that do things the way you can. That's Pat. That's Pat. Pat He's the only one uh, that can do it the way he did it. I played for Mike Fratello, great coach. Larry Brown, great coach. Uh, I was in the San Antonio system. But Pat Riley, from a player standpoint, I can tell you, changed me, like touched me. Um, you know, it also was maybe the first time that I thought I was going to have a chance to win a title. Uh, but Pat had a way of convincing you that you were going to win before it happened. And he had a way of making you feel like the only agenda from everybody in the room uh, was that we were going to win a title. And I have never had that mental approach. I, I say it all the time. I made one all-star team as a player, and I was an average player. But if I had to play for Pat, I, you know, early on, I think I would make two or three just just from being greedy and, and learning uh, some of the things that he did. Uh, but that changed me. I never wanted to coach. never thought about coaching, even though people had told me that you were going to be a coach. And if I don't play for Pat Riley, I don't think I ever coach a game. Uh, because I wanted to be that. I was like, I, I like that. I want to be that. Uh, I want to do what, what he does. And he's the one that made me want to coach. There's no doubt. Yeah. I mean, I look at him. I'm like, sure. I'd love to be that. I can't be that. <laughs> you know, so you have to do it in a, in a totally different way. But I, I think, uh, you know, he brought so many different elements to it, uh, of really 
full scale uh, preparation, attention to detail, uh, defense, uh, just the way he even presented himself. And then the CEO version of a modern day coach where he was presiding over a staff and allowing, you know, his assistant coaches to handle big parts of, of the coaching and preparation and coaching the team. Um, I think he just modernized all of that and you're seeing it, you know, league wide all the time. And I agree with you. I don't think he gets enough credit for, for I think he gets credit for style. He should get far more credit for the substance because that's like his, his, ability to get teams to believe and to to work and to cooperate uh his defensive approach his us against the world approach he did so many things well as a coach but the preparation part like if you are in a pat riley system as a assistant or a player you learn preparation and you learn you win because of preparation and the motivation part of it, uh, he's one and only. Uh, I mean, I would say this even objectively, uh, you know, I'm not you, but I would say probably the closest guy in terms of motivation would be Doc. Uh, just the way he relates to teams and the way he can get a locker room to really respond to a message. I see Coach Riley. You know, when I, when I hear or read things or, or hear your, your players talk about some of the things that you've done, uh, it's just classic Pat Riley when you put the money up in the, in the ceiling. <laughs> it, That's just a right. classic that Pat move. Pat. You know, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's, it's absolutely. <laughs> like, and I, I keep saying, if I don't play for that, I don't do that. I don't know how to do that. I don't even think about that. Uh, but it's definitely him. Had some, had Pat done that when you were a player? No, I honestly, that was just one of those, uh, we're going to lose. The game, um, and, and I, that was a fourth quarter thought. I guess I should have maybe been thinking about a play, but I, I swear I'm sitting there in the fourth quarter and like we're going to lose to the Lakers in this game, Christmas Day game. Yeah. And I thought it was going to be a down moment for our team. And my thought was I wanted them to understand this is just one loss, but we're going to come back here and we're going to win this thing. And so I went in the locker room, didn't know what I was going to do. I just knew Kevin Eastman was the, the smartest guy on my staff. <laughs> <laughs> and I told him, I said, hey, this is what I want to do. We need to get everybody out of the locker room. And Kevin and I looked for 10 minutes to find who would think of, not me, first of all. I just grabbed the panel in the ceiling, and I was just going to put the money there. He said, no, no, no. Uh, you got to look away from plumbing because the plumbers will find the money. Like who would even think of that? And he was right, you know. And so we found the spot. But that came doing the game. But that was stuff that coach taught us how to do. When you are trying to find your voice as a young head coach, who I am, how I'm going to present myself to the players, to my staff. It may be different for you, Spo, because you were literally replacing Pat. He walked out one. You, you you walk in and you had a lot of players who had played for him and but you like you said you couldn't be him and you weren't him and your the, the fundamentals and the the program and the core beliefs were going to be there and and doc you come from having not been an assistant coach how long does it take before because I think when we have influences we're all guilty of initially like I'm going to be like him and then you say well that's not then you realize this doesn't feel authentic I can take a little bit. But as a coach, it sort of plays out every day in front of your team, your staff. Like, does that take time? Did it take time? Yeah, and I, I think it was easy for me to look at Pat and the way he coached and, and to know right away, okay, I can't be that. 
That would be so disingenuous and I, I would lose everybody if I, I was trying to be him. I mean, to be frank, I, probably my more relatable uh, role models were Stan, you know, Jeff Buzdelic mm-hmm. and Jeff Van Gundy. I, I saw them and, and they were the first ones that are like, okay, well, that's a different way to, to coach. And, and really the fundamentals of learning how to teach and coach and gain respect uh, of players uh, by being competent, uh, I really looked at them and, and thought, well, well, I could probably mirror that and, and just have bring my own personality to it. I can't imagine. First of all, when I see Stan and Spo, I don't think of the same person. <laughs> <laughs> I, I must say that right away. <laughs> it was different. <laughs> but I can't – I think, Spo, you had it. Listen, following Pat Riley, I, it, the fact that you survived that is, you know, most people don't survive that. They, they really don't. Most coaches in all sports don't survive following a legend. And then following a legend that gives you a championship team, mm-hmm. that's that's remarkable. It really is. Like, you don't understand. Like, from afar, we see that far. Probably you were in it, and you don't understand. You know, my thing was, you know, Chuck Daly was retiring. You know, during the year, Chuck calls me on a code call. I didn't know Chuck well. You know, Mike Fratello and Chuck were tight. I still, to this day, don't know why Chuck took a liking to me. I, I don't. I had never coached. Uh, and he calls me, tells me to come to camp, training camp the year before. So I show up. We go to dinner. And the next thing you know, I'm getting offered the job with no experience, you know, zero experience. And, you know, Pat was my biggest influence. I will say that. But I had so many good coaches uh, Bob Hill, like, you know, listen, offensively, Bob Hill was a genius offensively, yeah. you know, and so I had a lot of guys in my head early on, and I had the courage to hire head coaches, you know, which, and that was another thing that a lot of the, oh, don't do that because they're going to want to be the head coach. Right. And I was like, well, they've been head coaches and I need that experience. So I wasn't scared to do that. I think that helped me. And then in the middle of that year, I made a change. On my own, I showed up one day and said, uh, I hate our offense. And uh, we had a four-day break, which is unusual. And I said, we're scrapping our offense. And I remember, you know, Johnny Davis, Dave Wool, Eric, a muscleman. Mm-hmm. You, you just can't do that. You, you can't change your offense. And I said, no, we're, we're doing it. I'm just going with it. And we did it. We, I think we got blown out by 40 the next game. And then we went on a run. And it gave me belief that you got to follow your, your gut. And I think that started me to finally being me. I think that helped. You talk about coaches in the league who I always like to talk about, talk to coaches about who they think the toughest guys are to prepare for. And it's not who you guys think are the best coaches are not who the public would necessarily always think. Sometimes, you know, you know, guys who don't get, who maybe haven't been blessed with great rosters, but you always feel like, man, they're going to challenge you in every way. Like, who's a guy or two that when you guys think the public doesn't talk about them, they maybe they haven't won championships, but you say, man, that that guy's tough to prepare for. I don't think there's any off nights. <laughs> I mean, I really don't. I mean, I, I, there's only thirty. Yeah, uh, there's only thirty, and and uh, I think everybody realizes, uh, you know, now just how. Uh, you know, rare these jobs have come around and, and everybody's so prepared now. And, and because of, uh, you know, the analytics and because of video, I, I remember, you know, 20 years ago, really only people watching 
endless amounts of video where the video coordinators and one assistant coach. Yeah. You know, I don't, uh, Dave Yeager, I, I, for some reason, like when we that played was, against him as a game coach, he's name. a damn yeah, good, as a game coach, he keeps you on your toes and, and you can't prepare for a lot of the things. That, that, that is hilarious. <laughs> I was going to say Dave Yeager. It, it's funny, uh, the first time in Memphis, we're about to play Memphis and I don't know who my assistant, and I'm terrible with names at times. <laughs> and so, uh, Dave comes over and says, hey, introduce himself. And I go back to the bench. Well, what's that guy's name? I'm, I'm, I'm asking my coaches, like, what's that guy's name? I can't remember his name. Uh, but every night, every time we played him, you know, it's funny. We swept Sacramento last year. And you don't – you didn't, no one wanted to play Sacramento last year. He runs great stuff. Yeah. Uh, he really does. Quirky, uh, which makes him even better in, in some ways. So that was going to be mine. And then the other, the other thing now is – you know, Eric, like your staff when you first started was probably three, four people. Right. Now your staff is 20. You know, if you count skill development, your video room, you're not going to slip by anything anymore. Right. You know, it's just too many guys. There's too many eyes and there's a lot of preparation. Uh, so when you show up for a single game now, you have to have your team ready or you're not going to win. I was talking last night with some other coaches in the league. Conversation came up about the Hall of Fame. Oh, and the, dis- the disparity in the basketball Hall of Fame <sighs> between NBA coaches and college coaches. And that, and I know the Coaches Association has talked about this. I know it's been, uh, um, Dave Fogel, um, Rick Carlisle, they, they, you know, whether it's Rudy Tomjanovich, Bill Fitch finally get in that there's such a focus at the Hall that they just, they just look at one loss records and, you, you can look at college and one lot, there's guys who've won a lot. There's certain places that are built to win. Not everybody. The one thing you have in the NBA is much more of a level playing field than college. You don't have in college, like there's no gimmies on your schedule and you can't just go out and recruit a whole new roster. Not every year anyway, you no. guys can't, but you look at the guys who are not in the hall and that you guys would look at. And I'd say innovators, Rick. Adelman, Rick Adelman right? should like be in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> you know, to, to me, it's always this: Can you write the history of basketball without filling the name? And I can go through some of those college coaches that are in and say, "Yep, we could write the history of basketball without him." But in the NBA, I mean, I think I'm sitting with two future Hall of Fame coaches here. But Rick Adelman never won a championship. <laughs> Maybe Mike D'Antoni may or may not win a championship, but Mike D'Antoni has innovated and impacted the game style of play where you'd go as much as anybody and you'd go, well, how this is judged is really interesting. Well, listen, I have a major problem with it. And I, I've, I've voiced it in there for two years in a row. I, I uh, got into it with the Hall of Fame guy last week over it. Um, it bugged me that Bill Fitch couldn't show up. He's about to die or, you know, hopefully he can live and, and he couldn't even show up to his own Hall of Fame. And I have two major problems with, with it all. And I have no problem being criticized about it. But uh, it bothers me that Pop's not in already. It bothers me that George Carl, like, uh, it, well, there's well, no rule. Now, now, Pop has said he wanted to put it off. Yeah, until- but not until we pushed and then okay. they, they invited. Okay. You know, okay. and so I think some of these guys, George Carl should have been Hall of Fame. Yeah, uh, I should have been in the Hall of Fame while he was coaching. I don't begrudge any college coach that's in. I think they all deserve it. 
But the fact that there's coaches coaching who are in the Hall of Fame in college, but there's coaches in the NBA who are not, is not right. And, you know, George Carl should have, and I use him as the example because he won coach of the year and got fired. It'd been interesting if he was Hall of Fame coach, George Carl. Would he literally still be coaching? You know, it, it does. It, it does a lot for you. And it's important for, for a lot of coaches. And uh, the fact that the NBA, there's no rule, by the way, that says you have to wait until you retire. They just don't put us in. And so, you know, Pop, I can name Dick Harder, by the way, yeah. is one that never was, you know, he was a head coach for a little while. He probably revolutionized defense as much as anybody. And Ronnie in the game. Rostein. Ronnie yeah. Rostein. Yeah. Jets winners finally got in. So, I mean, Rick Adelman, uh, everybody at some point in training camp puts in a version of his C offense. Literally, entirely. That is guaranteed. <laughs> um, and yet, you don't even hear his name no. uh, mentioned. So it bothers me, and, and I think we need to change it. Yeah, you know, it's funny. The, the contributor wing, which is so broad, contributed to the game. And to me, it has been overrun with administrators, bureaucrats, really what feels like, in some cases, just favors for friends. And it's the place for, you said, like a Dick Harder, a Tim Gergerich, who revolutionized the idea of player development. Skill development. Skill development. There should be an award named after Gerg. He's he's the godfather of skill development. But there's so many areas – and the fact that the NBA, for whatever reason, has not been honored the way it should be. You know, it's funny. The players in the NBA are all in the Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. but no one else. You know, is, and and the guys that don't really get in are the coaches. And the coaches, like, I just, you know, it's funny. And, and Pop hates when I do it, but I always walk up to him and jokingly say, Hall of Fame coach Greg Popovich. And he always says, stop doing that. And I said, well, it's true. You know, that's what we should be calling you. And so I don't get it. Uh, I've heard that they're going to make changes. They told us in our face yeah. for three years ago, yeah. and yet no change. Yeah, it's um, – and I think it's – and you guys know this, and I know you both have a lot of respect for the college game and college coaches. Major. I think you guys go in and learn, and, and you know, you both spent time around college football coaches, college basketball. But anybody who's worked in both, any coach who's been in both places – and I don't know that you have to be in college basketball to know, come on, there's more coaching that probably goes on in a week in the NBA than in a month of college the, 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 in a million ways. And it's it's not to diminish that, but but it's a different sport. I will agree with you. Uh, what it is, and uh, for whatever reason – it's not looked upon right. that way. And, and for we, all we want is a reason. Yeah. Uh, just for it to be addressed with a coherent reason why. The idea now, I think, in your profession of of how competitive it is between organizations, front offices, owners are competitive with each other. How much are you ever willing to share with guys you compete against? I suppose I've had coaches in the league who who are great admirers of yours who'd say, like, oh, I'd love to build a relationship with him. I really want to see how he does it. But, you know, Miami, it's a little more closed off there. You've been in Miami your whole career. You haven't been – I think different guys have different relationships because they've worked everywhere, and you know lots of people. But I think there's always been a sense of, like, the Miami culture has been a little more we don't 
we're not opening, we're not swinging our doors wide open to see how we do it. But sharing among each other, um, like you said, when you saw him at a clinic, Doc, and you're going, I don't know, maybe I don't, not that you're going to give something away there that he hadn't scouted or seen, but um, how do you guys view that within the profession? It's, it's a balancing act. You know, I think it turns out to be relationships yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Right. Uh, I don't go out my way to call and share. Uh, and I get calls. I get a lot of calls. Uh, and so does uh, Spo. But it is, you know, it's it's a, it's a tough one. Um, you know, when you go to a clinic or something, you share with whatever you're trying to share. But it is a competition still, too. And I understand that. That's another Riley thing that uh, I've learned. I remember we had uh, Riley open the door. We had a practice. Like, no one had practiced at your facility. And because Riles and I had this relationship, we practiced at your facility and we beat you guys. And I remember, uh, Tim Donovan <laughs> Tim Donahue comes up to me and says, well, there'll be no more practicing at the Miami Heat facility ever again. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and that's how you feel, though. Like, I have things that I'll do. Anyone can practice. In our facility, I'll, I'll do that. But then I have things that I'm, I'm very quirky about. Uh, you know, early on, I was very quirky about if I saw my assistants talking to the other assistants. I was like, "What, what are you guys talking about? What what possible conversations could you be having <laughs> right now?" And well, so, the assistants are complaining about you. Yeah, that's, that's what they're doing, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they complain about their head coach. And I'm like, the, the assistants want the other assistants to know how much knowledge they have, <laughs> right. just in case if there's a head coaching job there too. I gotta say, we're not quite as iron curtain as we used to be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we do open up our doors a little bit and, you know, we don't really necessarily go out of our way to network and I'm kind of an introvert anyway. Um, and it just kind of lines up, uh, during the off season. I like to go visit football programs just cause it's different. It, ca- it, it captures my interest a little bit more. I mean, you know, you're talking basketball with your staff and other people all year long. I like seeing something a little bit different. I relate to them and, and it usually ends up being not tactical discussions, but pers- it always comes down to personality management, and, and that's what I find uh, you know probably most interesting about this business. What's the one or two days you guys ever spent outside of basketball, whether it was at a football facility, you were on Belichick in Boston, Spo, I know you've gone all over NFL, college football. What was the one you walked out of there and said, "Wow," or, or a dinner with somebody who just was completely outside your element and said? I got more out of that than I would have ever imagined. I did uh, too for a specific reason. I, I saw Pete Carroll twice just because – not because he was winning Super Bowls. Actually, it was before uh, he won his first Super Bowl there. And it was more just his personality. It was like, he's so much different than me. I mentioned I'm, I'm an introvert. And I, I like to seek out people that are a lot different. So two years ago, was, you know who I was going to see in college football. I was going to see Dabo Swinney. Yeah. And I'm friends with Butch Jones. He's a very good friend of mine. So they used to compete against each other. Uh, but it, it was, he was such a, an incredible personality. I was like, oh man, if I could just have like 1% of that, <laughs> I'd be so much of a better coach and, you know, I'd be able to relate to my players better. But, uh, I walked out of both of those, uh, not only, uh, amazed at their ability to relate, uh, and just the one in a million personalities, uh, but also just how you, you walk out of there thinking, wow, this is, this is my best friend. <laughs> and they, you know, two days later, they they probably have, you know, 25 other people say, yeah, yeah I'm, I, I'm their I best friend too. Carol for me as well, just his energy. Yeah. You know, who, if you ask anyone at the age of Pete Carroll, everyone's getting it wrong. He's the oldest coach in the NFL. Yeah. There's no way you see that, yeah. you know. Uh, Belichick, 
would be the other one for me just because he's so different. And it's, it's a, you know, I had a chance to speak a couple of times and I love, it's funny. I went to their, I would always go to their offensive meetings right before the game. I would, he would, he gives you great access and you would sit there. And I remember the one game, they basically said what they were going to do and they did it. And then the one guy that's outside of sports that just blew me away is Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, I had a meeting with him and. I realized that I'm not very smart, you know, after that. But his ability to kind of understand people was incredible. Doc Spo, this was this was a lot of fun. I appreciate you guys doing this. We could do another hour on a whole other set of topics, but I appreciate you guys doing it. Okay. Oh, Thanks, it was a ball for us. Yeah, I Doc. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love oh, getting exposed and listening to what he's really thinking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definition of introvert, right? (laughs) That's great. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to our guest today, Heat coach Eric Spolstra and Clippers coach Doc Rivers. Be sure to subscribe to the Woj Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The season, training camp, it's just around the corner. We'll catch you soon. 